Welcome to This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. My name is Timothy Virkulam, and my job here is to help Paul collect his thoughts about what he wrote this week on thisiscommonsense.org. Now, every day on uh, thisiscommonsense.org, a number of other things are there besides Paul's writings. We have, for instance, uh, thoughts of the day. Today's thought was from Junior Samples. I don't know nothing, but I suspect a lot of things. That's become my recent motto, and it's nice to see it up there with a, a more handsome figure like Junior Samples. Uh, Mary Wollstonecraft, Frederick Bastiat, Jack Parr, they're all there. But this isn't the time for Frederick Bastiat or Mary Wollstonecraft or Jack Parr. This is the time for Paul Jacob. I, I've always wanted to be funny. <laughs> I've always wanted to be funny. I like, I'd like to be a comedian. Never quite monetized it, but my favorite script this week is You Kill Me. Because there's a there's a little bit of funny in there. This week, Joe Biden basically decided that Facebook was killing people. It was, it was last Friday that he decided that Facebook was killing people. And then on Monday, he was asked by a reporter about that and took that opportunity to clarify his remarks. And he didn't mean that Facebook was killing people. He meant that Facebook isn't killing people. And, uh, you know, so he clarified it a little bit. And um, what's, what's funny to me is that he's, he's, uh, he, he clarifies it. And most people would kind of go, look, I, I didn't mean it to sound that way or whatever. But, but not Biden. He's... Um, He's basically, look, I don't know why Facebook was was taking this so badly. Now, this is the president of the United States. This is a, a corporation, a big, you know, this is this is big tech with a lot of control over what people can say to one another. It's the town square in much of America is Facebook. And the president of the United States says they're killing people and then allows that to just sit there for days and then says, oh, oh, shucks, I meant Facebook isn't killing people. Well, which is it? And, and what he's saying is by allowing people to say things on Facebook that aren't true, except that it turns out we all know this because, really, I mean, if you're reading common sense, you could hardly dodge all the stuff about the Wuhan lab. Well, we know that during the last year, you weren't allowed to talk about the lab leak because it was a conspiracy, because it was it was disinformation, it was lies, it was, except it wasn't. And anyone who has any concept of the scope of history knows that if you allow the government to decide what is truth and what is not truth, you don't have free speech. You have the right to say what the government tells you you can say. And those are big differences. And when you think about, I've, you know, I, I read a lot of stuff that, that, uh, about China and, and uh, you know, so many of the different problems they have, the government will come out there and make some statement. And it's just so, it's, it's all gaslighting. It's all ridiculous. And everybody, they know they're lying. Everybody listening knows they're lying. 
And that's the type of society you have if the government gets to determine what truth is and you don't get debated. And here's the other thing. You don't find cures for diseases. You don't find new information to help people because everybody shut up. What the biggest problem with this whole virus is that during the crucial, and they may not be in the crucial first weeks, but the crucial first weeks of us knowing anything was going on in China, we were lied to. The Chinese government basically shut up doctors who were trying to warn people and said there was no problem and got the WHO to repeat their lines, not Pete, Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey, not that WHO. They're actually a pretty decent group. But the World Health Organization, which has been basically in bed with China during this whole thing until very, very recently, and we'll get to that with, with uh, some of the other scripts. Um, but Joe Biden decided to use ridiculous language and then kind of kind of acts like, oh, I don't know why Facebook got their nose out of joint. Well, this is highly outrageous behavior by a president of the United States and running around saying people are killing people. It, it really the, the truth is people have made mistakes. Public officials, Donald Trump, when he was president, Joe Biden as president, the CDC people, Fauci, and, and some of these may not have been mistakes. Some of them, and that, I said, as you'll remember, and, and I'm sure, you know, readers of Common Sense are always studying past issues, you know, past commentaries to make sure they understand everything completely. But at the very beginning of this pandemic, I did what I think a lot of people thought, oh, you're being way too generous, Paul. But I basically said, look, we hadn't been through this before, and I'm going to do my best to not slam politicians for making honest mistakes and made a clear distinction between honest mistakes where you're trying to decide what to do and you decide wrongly, mistakenly. And somebody's hurt because of that. We, we go through that every day. All of us do. We, we do things and we tried to do better and it didn't work. You know, we have an accident in our car or, or what have you. Those should be forgiven because they're mistakes. What's less forgivable until someone says, oh, I'm so sorry, is when they purposely do things. And, and you know, a lot of people I know hate Dr. Fauci. And I've never really gotten to hate Dr. Fauci. Um, and I, and I, I've given him the benefit of the doubt, I think, a lot of this. He's, you know, I, I didn't like what he said about masks early on when he was saying they didn't work. Uh, and that there's no reason to use them. And I thought, well, isn't there a little marginal utility here? Why are you being so ridiculous about, oh, it'll be the worst thing in the world if you wear masks? Then, of course, they flip and they say, no, everybody needs to wear a mask. And if you've been vaccinated 62 times and you're by yourself in the Grand Canyon, there's no one within 100 miles. You must put on the mask because it's, you know, it's become don't use it no matter what to it's the savior. And of course, I think most people who've looked at this pandemic from just stepping back a, a step realize that, you know, we've had mask, mass mask wearing, and it hasn't seemed to have really made huge differences. Now, maybe on the margin it does. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't. 
but I think it's very marginal because otherwise we would have seen its impact in some way on the virus. And all of a sudden, you no one's wearing masks and then everyone's wearing masks and the virus keeps going like this. So it's and I'm, I'm waving my finger up and down. So it doesn't seem to be that masks are the key element. Anyway, Fauci uh, has certainly been involved in all of the all of the politics of this. And that's a very ugly part. And we on on Friday, we talk about the politics of it uh, again. And, uh, and and so let's just move to Fridays. We'll come back and pick up the others. But uh, on Friday, we talked about transparency with Chinese characteristics. And um, I love that line, of course, because uh, that title, which is which is Tim's. I had a a uh, passable title, but it wasn't nearly as clever as this one. And we've talked about Chinese characteristics before, because of course the uh, Chinazis talk about socialism with Chinese characteristics, meaning it's not really so much socialism, it's a form of state capitalism that's really more Nazism or fascism in the sense of they have weaponized their, their economy. They want everyone making money, and they'll take the money from you when they feel like it, and they'll put you in jail if they don't like what you're doing, and they'll they'll do whatever they want, and they will dispatch their their boats to fish all over the world, whether it's in somebody else's waters or not. If they don't like it, they might kill them or smash their boat or threaten them or have twenty Chinese vessels all of a sudden on top of them and scare them away. They do this in the coast of the Philippines and Vietnam and. And all the way over in in uh, South America and and other places, this is a regime that is not socialism with Chinese characteristics. It is a thug mob style criminal regime, and I call them the Chinazis. It's a it's what the folks in Hong Kong were calling them. And it just dawned on me that that's that is so accurate compared to all the other things that aren't very accurate, Um, because the main thing that they're interested in is more and more power and money. And so if you have kind of a problem with capitalism, that it's about power and money, well, this is state capitalism on steroids, but it's not just. You know, is, if if you kind of think survival of the fittest is like a cruel way to do it, this is not survival of the fittest. This is survival of the most criminal. So this is not kind of a free market run amok. There's no free market whatsoever. This is you go make money or you may be in, in deep trouble and kicked to the curb. And that sort of attitude from the top down, it's, you know, it is really a scary situation. And, you know, the, the, the point of this piece, Transparency with Chinese Characteristics, is to one highlight to everybody, okay, there has been no investigation. None. None. And I keep reading articles in Washington Post and New York Times, and sometimes they will explain after they say, well, you know, there was the who, China, the joint China who, and I'm thinking, what were they smoking? Because there was no investigation, joint or otherwise. But um, I'm showing my age and my and my dad humor. But anyway, the 
you constantly see these articles where they repeat that there was this investigation and there was no investigation today and it was after we put everything to bed but today the washington post had an editorial i suspect it'll run in in the dead tree edition tomorrow saturday this is friday night that we take these and and uh but the editorial basically for the first time i've seen the post do it points out all the ways that china has hidden information and been completely uncooperative in every way and uh, but but so often, and of course, you should mention that this is about COVID. This is about the disease. It wasn't entirely clear from what you were talking about that this is about the disease. Uh, it's it's uh, investigation into the origin yes, of the Wuhan flu or the CCP flu or whatever you want to call it. Yes, yes, it it is. Uh, um, it's that the who, and and I'll just I'll just kind of you know for for uh, uh, everyone's sake, in case there's any part of it that they that they you know, aren't aware of the who did a joint investigation with China a year after everything broke. So, I mean, way, way late because China wouldn't let people in. And, and you could kind of understand, oh, well, maybe everything was so in flux and so on. BS, BS, but okay. But finally, they let folks in. Now, now I've never seen this printed in the Post or the New York Times, but the the people who went on this one of them is uh, Peter Daznak, uh, who is the guy with Echo Health, who got the money from from the NIH and gave it to the Wuhan Institute for Virology. And, and so the folks who went on this were not independent investigators looking for truth. They were people who were very self-interested in a decision that no, 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 it was not the lab. So there's that from the get-go. But did they investigate the lab? Well, if you were going to investigate a lab, what would you do? Would you go there and have people walk you around the building and maybe give a speech or whatever? No, because this isn't a dog and pony show. It's an investigation. So you'd expect some forensic you know, look at different things. You would interview people who had been part of it. You'd be looking. This is more of a police function, not a PR, let's have a cocktail party function. And this whole investigation was photo op plus a bunch of lying. And and of course, they came back in February and they said, well, we, we haven't found the answer yet, but it's we have determined that it's extremely unlikely that it came from a lab, a lab leak. And of course, totally self-serving, even the head, Tedros, the head, the director general of the, of the World Health Organization, who has been lambasted as a, a crony for the Chinese, who went along with all of their early pronouncements, even on this, you know, uh, up to this event where they go and do this phony investigation, and then as soon as they released the results, people realized they didn't look at anything. This is complete crap. And of course, I call it that. The Post, the Times, other scientists are very careful about, well, well we don't think it was as thorough. It was garbage, garbage designed to trick people. And, and to me, it makes the likelihood of a lab leak much higher. I've never said, we've written probably a dozen, a dozen, maybe 
closer to two dozen things touching on this, you know, commentaries. We've been looking at it. We've never said, oh, it came from the lab. We know it. We don't know. But when there is this much resistance to even its consideration, and we have drawn for, for readers all the links back to Fauci, back to folks in the U.S., back to the U.S. big government science community, and we have kind of discovered that, you know what, scientists like money too. And when money's on the line, they can circle the wagons and say, hey, big science is perfect in every way. It's crap and it has nothing to do with science. And and we next time you see something in the newspaper, let pay attention to whether they are looking at this joint who China investigation as if it is some real investigation, because it's not. And in fact, the phoniness of it is what pretty much blew the lid off of all this discussion. It was after that that people realized, wait a second, we're, you know, this is complete gaslighting. And China does that all the time. And I, I note in this piece, Transparency with Chinese Characteristics, uh, that the New York Times then kind of repeats that the Chinese scientists were arguing, hey, wait, uh, you know, first they were shocked, shocked that anyone would want to investigate. But but then the, the way the New York Times put it is they said there was no ev evidence to justify renewed checks of the labs. And that's when my antenna just started to go haywire because I know there never were investigations. There were no checks on the labs. It was China going, hey, no problem. I mean, we could have just picked up the phone, talked to Xi Jinping and said, hey, do you want to blame China? No. OK. And and that's it. That's basically what the investigation has been. The reality is, I think we're unlikely to know with any type of certainty because it's not just that they shut up the doctors and they block the investigation. They've got all kinds of data that they've refused to share. Why would you refuse to share that? Only because, as we talked about a week or so ago, uh, because of the hearing that was held, they got almost no press, but that so often you hear, well, there's no real evidence for the lab leak. But the reality is there is some evidence. There's not conclusive evidence. There's not a smoking gun because, of course, almost all the so-called, you know, the, the uh, data that might be a smoking gun, China's pulled offline. China's shut up the doctors. China has stopped anyone from finding out. So, you know, this, this is something that we're unlikely to know. But when someone is destroying all the evidence, doesn't it kind of suggest that maybe they have something to hide? You know, it's my understanding that in politics, that is in government, that is among people who know, a blue ribbon investigatory panel is notoriously a cover-up. Is that you don't really ever trust those things. I mean, that's kind of one of the purposes of them is, is, to, is to not tell the whole truth. I mean, one of the reasons many people started to believe that 9-11 events weren't caused by a bunch of guys in airplanes was because of the nature of the report on the event. Uh, and people who've read the Warren report, they, they didn't really start believing in conspiracy theories until they read the stupid report, 
which w- did not seem very forthcoming and had a whole bunch of holes in it and just sort of wallpaper stuff over. And that makes people suspicious. Yes, and, and I think to some degree, I'm not sure that the powers that be are so sad about us being suspicious and people moving to conspiracy theories because it's it's evidence that they have been successful in denying people any sort of comfort in knowing enough to to say okay this is what happened and and you know that's that's a very powerful thing to be able to so confuse the electorate the people by telling them things they know aren't true and refusing to kind of own up to things that are true or to further investigate things that might be true. And, uh, and, and we've seen in this story more than any, I think, very bright illumination of the fact that big government is with big science, is with big media, and that they all have interest in the status quo. And if people determine that, hey, big science is partly responsible for this and big government, especially big Chinese government, but the U.S. government, you know, so often when I've talked to people about, you know, my, my concern that China is a, a menace beyond all others, it's seen as, oh, it's the U.S. versus China and so on. I think for most people in the know and most people who are woke to this problem, it's not a problem that ends at the border of China. It's not just a problem with the Politburo and Xi Jinping and the, you know, the communists controlling 1.4 billion when it's only, what, 90 million who are members of the Communist Party and who get any vote whatsoever. And of course, they better vote right or they may be dead later. Um, This problem of government having all kinds of power in terms of surveilling and knowing about us and 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 then being able to control what we can find out and i mean this is this is orwellian nightmarish stuff and it is not just a problem because the chinazis are doing it it's a problem because we can see Edward Snowden, who's the poster right here, love him, hate him. I love him. Uh, I love him because he confirmed something critically important, that our government is breaking the law and just ripping up our Fourth Amendment rights and treating us as Big Brother would treat Winston Smith in 1984. That is a serious problem. Chinese regime as the number one danger in the world. And I see people involved in the USA as probably the number two problem in the world because they would like our free society, which, you know, the, the level it's free or whatever, but but we're we're striving and most of us want it to be free. They don't. They want it to be safe. They wanted to be, and of course, uh, who, what was what did Ben Franklin say? Those who who will give up uh, freedom for security uh, deserve neither. And the truth is, it doesn't matter what they deserve because history is so clear that you get neither.
you, no one has ever successfully traded their freedom for security. And and so that we have a we have a world in which there's this huge threat in China and to all of Asia from there. But there's also a huge internal threat that we can see. We see people all the time, the president of the United States, uh, other folks, the intel people talking about misinformation and how they have to control what we can hear. This is it's like we're lab rats and we just picked up we can hear we can understand English and uh, they're talking about us and they're not talking nicely. So this, uh, you know, we we now should recognize that any any coverage of this that doesn't make it clear that China has been a 110 percent bad actor is BS coverage. And of course, the only reason that now they're starting to come out with it, as we pointed out regularly, is because their narrative designed to not blame China, but to blame Donald Trump has already played out. They've got Trump out of the White House. And so now they can blame China a little bit and increasingly more as people realize what's going on. But this is uh, this is, I think, the most serious issue over the last year or so. And it'll be interesting to see what else we we can learn from it. But we've already we already know we're we're sort of behind enemy lines that our media is not our friend. There are enemies and there. When you lie to me, you're you're the enemy and you may think you're doing it for my own good. May have just a heart of gold. You're my enemy if you're lying to me, especially if you're charging me money to tell me the truth and then lying to me. That's even worse. Um, big, big science that's going to save us. We just need to follow the science. No, we can't. If if it's the scientists, we can't follow them and we can't follow a media that thinks that science is decided by vote of the scientists. I mean, I keep reading in all these stories. Most scientists think this. I don't care what most scientists think or that 62% think this and 14%. It's not how science works. You, you come up with a theorem, you test it, you test it again, you test it forever again and again. That's how science works. There's no voting of scientists worldwide to determine. That's not how we figured out gravity. Well, we held a vote. And finally, 51% of the scientists said, yes, there is gravity. Um, this is, this is, uh, we're going to have more of this, but, um, but it, it I, I think there is an increasing realization among people that we have to read between the lines and that we are, you know, there are people who would not expect the government to be lying to them the way that they have been, and they're realizing that it now. I have a good friend who uh, who has been a staunch defender, very liberal, pro Biden, hated Trump's guts, uh, loved Fauci, very scared about the virus. You know, in, in other words, all the all the the kind of mental, political, all of his feelings are are that way, and told me after this week, and we'll do something on this for next week about this fight between Rand Paul and, and Fauci. You know, they got into a new dust up and Fauci said he didn't know what he was talking about and so on. A great uh, column in the Washington Post, I believe it was today, uh, Friday, saying, 
he kind of does know what he's talking about and and what has allowed fauci to um to to have this position that you don't know what you're talking about is that the cdc and big science big government science in america redefined what gain of function is now you could explain gain of function to almost anybody you get these viruses and you do things so that they can make it to where they're able to infect people more easily or more strongly or this or that, but they gain some function. So, I mean, it makes sense. That's not the definition anymore because big science in America during the Obama administration defined it to mean a very narrow type of thing. And so that when you basically punch up a virus so that it's much more able to infect human beings and it's gained that function of being able to infect human beings, you know, that gain of function to affect human beings, that has nothing to do with gain of function. That's not gain of function. Gain of function isn't gain of function. That's that's what this debate is about, is that they've done a, a very narrow definition of what they're going to call gain of function so that all kinds of things that that scientists do in laboratories to punch up these viruses to gain extra functions is no longer defined as gain of function. It's called BS. And and that's what Fauci is going with. And that's what caused my friend to say, I can't believe it. But I agree with Rand Paul. He can't stand Rand Paul. I agree with Rand Paul. And in fact, in, in communicating with him today through text and so on, he said, Fauci's got to go. This, this guy loves Fauci. He's believed, I mean, he's, and, and Fauci's a good communicator. It, you know, I mean, if you just kind of take all the politics off and you listen to him, he's, he's a, you know, he, he usually makes sense. He's, he's been comforting for a lot of people during this. But the, this guy loves Fauci. He tells me today, Fauci's got to go. Because you cannot have this phony definition. You know, millions of people are dead from this virus. All the, all the scare stories that a lot of us have looked at and said, look, you know, people die all the time. The fact that these people die, they die of flu. They, you know, we don't go crazy about the flu. But think about it. Among Folks who are making this, oh, we've got to do whatever because someone died, because millions have died across the world. Those people are the Fauci folks. And Fauci's playing a game. And I think people are going to increasingly see this. And, and you have to know, my hat is so off to Rand Paul, who I know slightly from having hung out with him some during his, his dad's campaign for president as a libertarian back in 1988. Smart guy, fun guy, I like him. Um, but I think this takes a lot of guts because everyone would love, you know, you've got a lot of powerful people who don't want him to win this tussle. And he's come after Fauci again and again. And as uh, Josh Rogan said in his piece, um, you know, he can say he doesn't know anything, but there sure are a lot of scientists who think he he, he knows exactly what he's talking about. No. Uh, whose piece? You said Rogan? This is Josh Rogan. It's R-O-G-I-N. He's a Washington Post. 
he he's written a, he's written a lot about China and Taiwan and Hong Kong, and he's come at this pandemic and the Wuhan lab and so on. I think somewhat from that perspective, which is of course kind of the perspective I come at it from. I don't, you know, I'm not a big into medicine and so on. You know, I, I'm, I'm more, uh, uh, I'm not a STEM guy. And, and so, you know, I, I, I don't know all the, all the medical stuff and so on, but I see the po- politics behind it. And I think he has seen the same, the same thing. And so his coverage of, of this has been uh, so much more hard hitting than than the Washington Post overall. Uh, in fact, night and day. Although there's an editorial, and, and maybe I just mentioned this, but if not, uh, in case I didn't, um, there's now an editorial where the Washington Post has come out. I think it's going to be in tomorrow's paper. It's online already. Uh, but where they've said, you know, China's getting more and more dishonest about this. Well, no. They started out totally 100% dishonest, and they've stuck to 100% dishonest. But the Post is having either either they're waking up to it or they're having to at least speak to it because increasingly people are waking up to it. You've written about Rogan before in other contexts about China, but not about the Wuhan flu. Yes. Yeah, he was he was very good, I think, in in looking at Trump's policies as apart from Trump on China. And and not that he was always pro everything that Trump was doing, but just he seemed to be able to separate his his view on Trump from the actual facts and of what the policies were and so on. And it's it has been interesting to see him transition from Trump to Biden because he's been, I think, uh, kind of an honest broker, which is what you'd like, uh, in terms of looking at what Biden's done and what Trump has done and how their policies have, have been largely the same. I mean, he's one of the people who's pointed out that, you know, they can beat up, Biden can beat up Trump and he's changed a lot of his policies on different things. But when it comes to China and Taiwan, uh, Biden has has pretty much kept all the Trump policies which I think is important because we we basically after Tiananmen Square, it's if, if you look at U.S. policy, it's almost like Tiananmen Square was a party that the CCP threw for the U.S. to say how much they like us. Because after Tiananmen Square, it seemed like all of a sudden they got whatever they wanted. It was it's just it's it's mind boggling that that was 1989. Bill Clinton is elected in 1992, and in 93, they're getting most favored nation status, and they're being added to the, you know, the, uh, what is it? It's not the World Trade Commission, is it? Or World uh, uh, Trade Organization, WTO, and, and you know, they're getting everything they want. And really throughout the Biden administration, there was no pushback on anything they did. So- um, Do you mean the Obama administration? Yes, did I? What did I say? You said the Biden administration. Oh, well, it was the Obama Biden. But I'll tell you, uh, Biden's been much better on foreign policy thus far than than Obama, and that's both, I think, in terms of standing up to China, but also in terms of being willing to leave Afghanistan. And and look, when Afghanistan, we're we're on a tangent here, obviously, but but. Um, 
Afghanistan is going to fall apart. It's been falling apart. We've been holding it together. If we leave, it's going to fall apart and there's no one to hold it together. And there's a piece about how they're they're doing more airstrikes and different things. But this is, you know, we're throwing good money after bad. And it's horrible that the Taliban will come back. But the U.S. cannot occupy every hamlet and village in the entire world to keep bad guys away. We do have to kind of prioritize things. And and nothing, I mean, we could be in Afghanistan another 10 years or 50 or 100 or 7,000 years, and there's there's no progress being made. So I wish the people there the best, but I don't think, I mean, the truth is even with us there, even with our whole military footprint there, uh, there were times where, where the Taliban's controlled over half the country, and there doesn't seem to be any way to stop them. The only way you stop a, a band of, of lunatics like that is if they don't have any public support. You notice that when, you know, when we liberated France or Germany or some different places, there, you know, there was not a whole lot of resistance to us because they wanted us there. In Afghanistan, there's tremendous resistance. And, you know, it, anyway, I do think Biden has uh, uh, Obama's foreign policy would have been better had it been more directed by Joe Biden. And I'm not, trust me, I'm not a big Joe Biden fan. Even on foreign policy, I'm not a big Biden fan. I just think that Obama was kind of the worst of all possible worlds. Like like Syria, I didn't want to go into Syria or bomb Syria or do anything else. But when the president of the United States says, if you cross this red line, then you're going to get it. And then they cross the red line and you go, oh, Congress, can I, should I? And then who who bailed them out? If people remember, it was the evil Putin who came in and said, well, I think we can we can develop something where we can negotiate and get to a better place. And Putin comes in as the peacemaker. The, the right thing to do would not to draw the line in the first place, because if you draw lines, you have to stand behind them. If you draw lines and don't stand behind them, you're kind of sending a signal that even when I bluster now, don't be too worried because I won't I won't do anything about it. That's just I mean, that's just basic human interaction. That's no no sophisticated thing. And then, of course, that same Obama. Overthrows Gaddafi in Libya with no seeming plan to do anything beyond that. Not that they would have had some great plan to rebuild. I mean, nation building has not been our strong suit or anyone's ever in the history of mankind. So, um, but but Obama was kind of the worst of both worlds in that way. Um, show weakness and then still use the military to destabilize regimes and create a bunch of havoc. Um, so speaking of of havoc, maybe we should uh, we should go to the better havoc being had, which uh, we're hoping for havoc in in Cuba and uh, embargo socialism. And this is a uh, I think you know I I have always thought that the you know embargo was kind of a complete embargo and. Uh, and you know we we learn from from watching uh, uh, Marco Rubio in an interview talk about wait a second this is an embargo against 
the Cuban government and against state-owned enterprises. Now, of course, in, in Cuba, just about everything is a state-owned enterprise. And of course, the Cuban government will not allow private enterprises to have anything to do with the U.S. or trade or do other things. So it does become kind of a full embargo. But it it does start to make you realize that this is, you know, someone is using force here. Uh, and And on the U.S. side, the government is using force to say you cannot trade with the Cuban government or with, you know, state run enterprises in Cuba. We can argue whether that's something that should be. I think it for most of us and, and some libertarians would say, well, never should the government be able to tell you you couldn't trade with someone. But I think during World War Two, it it kind of makes sense to people to say, you know, we probably shouldn't be shipping technology to Imperial Japan or to Hitler and the Nazis. And I look at what Castro and, and now Castro's gone, not just Fidel, but Raul, too. And uh, and they've got a new commie head. Um, they're a vicious regime where people have no freedom. And I think we should recognize that the same way that we should recognize it in China. Now, uh, Cuba is a lot less of a threat, uh, even as close as they are, because they're poor and and not able to you know project power outside of their their border. China is not weak; they're not poor, and they are able to project power all over the the globe. So it's a, a different thing. But making that sort of of uh, uh, judgment seems to me to be a legitimate judgment to make. I look at I mean, how, what's it been? Uh, 19, this is before we were born, Tim, uh, or right as we were being born, 59, 60, that the, the embargo. And, and basically, it's hard to argue it's worked. But one of the points I make in this piece is that you see the Cuban people waving American flags. They know who it is who's fighting their enemy their government, and that's the U.S. And I remember being on the streets of Hong Kong. I was there for about 36 hours, but long enough to get into a march, long enough to get tear gassed and all kinds of things. Um, But I remember how many flags they had. They had U.S. flags all over that march. They had Canadian flags all over that march. Uh, I saw a couple of Taiwanese flags. I'm sure that I'm sure the uh, butchers of Beijing didn't like that any. Um, and I kind of thought, well, that's, that seems like a mistake to be showing the U.S. flag. But, of course, in their calculations, they know they're not changing the minds of Xi Jinping and the Chinazis uh, to kind of, oh, we were going to take away all your freedoms, but now you're, you're so persuasive that we're not going to. They're trying to reach an American audience and a Canadian audience, and they see these countries and they know that these countries have some level of freedom that they desperately want. And so um, I have to say it's it's moving. I have spent most of my life criticizing the U.S. government, and it has deserved every bit of that criticism, probably more. Uh, I've criticized it a lot on foreign policy, 
But I'll tell you what, to sit and talk to people in Hong Kong or in Taiwan, um, they're very thankful that the United States of America exists and not because they they love our baseball or, our, you know, they do, but um, but because we have freedom. That's what they want. They don't want to be like Americans. They just want to have the same freedom so that they can be like themselves. And uh, and it it is it's uh, you know you realize these folks are absolutely grateful that the United States of America is around because if it wasn't they would be just you know consumed by by evil so um, the same is true in in uh, uh, Cuba obviously that they you know they like Americans they want to be more like America. And and it's interesting, it it's it's maybe the reverse of Afghanistan. I have a feeling that we could stay there 50 years, 100 years, and the second we left, it would, you know, it would be gone. And I think the same is true that that the moment that the Cuban communist government doesn't have its foot on the neck of the people and it's gun pointed to their head, they're gonna be overthrown. The people there do not like it. They read through the lines. It's, it, you know, it, it, every time in these countries that they get any chance for freedom, you see the outpouring of support for it. And uh, it's, you know, we all want the same things. It would be wonderful to see uh, Cuba uh, return to some level of freedom. And I think it's a lot more possible because one of the things we've discussed, we haven't really ever written anything about it, um, can write about everything, but but um, is this this kind of big, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the super man, you know, the big brother of socialism, the, uh, I'm going to forget his name in, in uh, Venezuela. Boy, that's wonderful to be able to forget his name. Uh, Hugo Chavez, uh, Castro, these, you know, Mao, these are the super leaders and and the cult of kind of this omnipotent leader. And it's hard to maintain that forever. And I think it's going to be very tough for Cuba to remain communist through just brute force alone. And uh, and and so hopefully we're going to see some some flowering of freedom in Cuba soon. On Monday, you talked about uh, a little increase in freedom in one state of the Union, Maine, and the Maine alternative to state robbery. And uh, there there's, uh, well, we got a little more freedom and a little less thuggery. You know, we've had all kinds of reform with quote marks on civil asset forfeiture and other kind of criminal justice stuff that often gets lost in the weeds. You know, there's certain rules and it sounds good, but, oh, you know, they could, you know, they have some trap doors and some loopholes. Um, we've seen civil asset forfeiture reform that's been pretty effective that has just limited, you know, they can't use civil asset forfeiture unless it's over a certain amount. Because they're always saying, we're doing this to go after the kingpin, you know, the drug kingpins and so on. And then you find out, no, they're pulling over little old ladies and stealing 500 bucks from them. I mean, that's that's much more 
the average than it is some some kingpin where they're taking their yacht or something. So, um, but in the truth is the principle of civil asset forfeiture is so ugly. It destroys innocent until proven guilty. It allows the, the, the police to steal people's stuff and to keep it unless the person can somehow go to court and prove their innocence. That that flips the whole idea of justice on its head. And what I like so much about what they did in Maine is they abolished civil asset forfeiture. You cannot use civil asset forfeiture. You prove someone guilty of a crime, then you can go after the, 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 the ill-gotten goods that they got from that crime. But you don't convict someone of a crime, you are not taking their stuff in the state of Maine. And, and I applaud it. It also was very heartening because uh, Billy Bob Falkingham, who's the state rep uh, from Winter Harbor, Maine, was the sponsor of this bill. And he's a, he's a buddy of mine. I haven't known him very long for a few years, but he's got lots of good legislation. We made a point of saying that he's got a uh, right to farm uh, bill, uh, not bill, amendment to the state constitution uh, that I think is a pretty good pro-freedom, uh, uh, you know, protect the right to farm in the constitution. And uh, that's going to be on the ballot in 2022 in Maine, which I think is great. And then he's also got a voter ID bill that's very good that uh, has been blocked in the legislature that he may do as an initiative. But it's someone who cares about these issues very much in the kind of the Ron Paul tradition uh, as far as his policies and ideologically and uh, just a real good guy and a, and a working guy. Um, you know, he works as a as a uh, lobsterman. And, uh, you know, he's got kind of a sense of what working people, you know, are going through, which, you know, in, in Congress is almost unheard of. But even in state legislatures, I think it's not there's not as much knowledge about what's really going on in the economy as there should be. Uh, so hats off to uh, Billy Bob and, and to uh, the state of Maine. It's now one of three states, uh, I believe. Um, Oh, uh, one of them I had, I, I was going to say I didn't know one, but I didn't know one. And now I've forgotten the one. But anyway, there are now three states that have completely abolished uh, civil asset forfeiture. And uh, and we need we need all 50 states. The the uh, the other commentary this week, and I think I'll let people go read it because I don't I don't think I can really add a whole lot to it. It really it it interests me. I think it's fascinating. I think it's exciting. It's um, it it demonstrates both the wonders of what the future could be. Um, and so often we look at the wonders of technology and we look at how fearful it can make us in, you know, if that technology is in the wrong hands. But the power of my, of man's mind uh, is about a person. Now, the person's name is T5. That's not their real name, but because they're involved in this research, they they aren't releasing their actual name. Uh, and in the research, their, their uh, uh, little name is T5. Uh, but this is a person who had a serious accident, uh, paralyzed almost entirely through their body. And of course, they can't you know, we have so much technology that they could use, except 
they can't move their hands, they can't speak, they can't, I mean, they're, they're just in a terrible situation. And now they are able to speak. A chip in the brain, a tremendous amount of work between these people who are trying to be able to communicate and scientists who are trying to help them communicate, doctors. Uh, beautiful story uh, and links to, to more information on it. Uh, but it's exciting to think of, of what we can do to help each other, to empower people. And, um, and so, you know, as much as a lot of the technology scares me because it's in the hands of, of tyrants, um, technology is a wonderful thing. And the fact that we can use it to allow people who are in a, a terrible situation to get into a situation in which there's joy and there's communication and there's love and uh, it's a wonderful thing. So I, I was going to just, you know, tee it up and let you go there. I've told you half the story now, but anyway, probably more than half. But it, it is, uh, uh, I think, worth reading The Power of Man's Mind. And, uh, and there's links to more information. Very good. That is a week. I guess the third week of July, 2021. Yes. And you know what's interesting? It's funny. Some weeks uh, you go through and, you know, there's a new story that comes up. You know, I'm always thinking, well, we're going to do this and this. And, you know, sometimes I'm not thinking that. Sometimes I'm thinking, what are we going to do? But, but uh, a lot of times I have a couple ideas. Um, and then other weeks I, I don't really, and, and you never know, some of those weeks turn out just fine, but I've got about three pieces, uh, already in mind for, for next week. So if I'm not too lazy this weekend, uh, we'll get a head start, but there's, there's a lot happening. And, uh, and the, the beauty of, of this for me is that I am so pessimistic about, the powers that be, the establishment from big government science to big government to big media, but the public, and I'm not just talking about libertarians, I'm not just talking about conservatives, the public is so much better. And if we can have real conversations and if we can, you know, have real information I think the public is moving in a more free direction. I think there's more support for things like initiative and referendum, for reforms of government uh, than there ever has been. Now, the, you know, the, the rub is we, we've got to get those implemented. We've got to do things. And, uh, and politics is a tough business. It's, uh, it's almost always, you know, two steps forward, one step back, and that's if it's not one step forward and two steps back. But, uh, but it, I'm excited by the fact that, you know, and, and I think we talked about this some last week, this one hearing that we were talking about, we were a bunch of scientists talking about these issues and it got no coverage, but it, it just dawned on me that, you know, there are just too many people in a free society who are smart, who are knowledgeable and who are not going to shut up. And our goal in this program is to find those people and give them megaphones and find the people who care, you people listening, and let's get together and learn more and do something about it. 
Thank you for joining Paul Jacob and me for This Week in Common Sense. Every weekend, we wrap up the big stories from the previous week that have appeared on thisiscommonsense.org, the website that Paul Jacob has been producing since 1999. The podcast can be found through the usual podcatchers and is hosted on SoundCloud. You can always find this and the video version at thisiscommonsense.org. Thank you.